That's the sound of a B-52 bomber taking off in the 1950s. I'm Andy Platman, one of the librettists of the new opera Brainland. So, why start a podcast about an opera with a B-52? Well, Brainland opens at RAF Fairford in Gloucestershire in 1957, a base leased to the Americans throughout the 50s as a home for B-52 bombers that carried their nuclear deterrent. In this opening scene, four UK brain specialists and scientists arrive at the base to await a US military flight to Norway. They're on their way to a new US-funded brain laboratory in Oslo. Unlike Puccini, who set three separate stories in Il Tritico, Brainland interweaves three linked stories, stories based on true events. In the Brainland podcasts, we are filling in some background to those stories by hearing from specialists and academics. The leader of the group was physiologist William Gray Walter, and he was accompanied by colleagues from the Burden Neurological Institute in Bristol and a neurosurgeon from Frenchay Hospital. Oh, and uh, Topsy, of whom more later. So who was Gray Walter, and why were he and his colleagues going to Norway? Our first expert witness is Phil Husbands. Hi, Phil. Perhaps you could introduce yourself and tell us about William Gray Walter. Hello, my name's Phil Husbands, and I'm Research Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of Sussex. Now, for most of my career, I've worked on the boundaries of AI, robotics and neuroscience. And this led me to Gray Walter because, in my opinion, he is the most important pioneer of this kind of approach. So, William Gray Walter, always known as Gray Walter, was a 20th century neurophysiologist with an extraordinary breadth of interest and achievements. He was also a rather fascinating character with this very rich and unusual backstory. Larger than life, he seemed to be perpetually followed by some kind of vague cloud of scandal, which unfortunately I don't think we'll have time to talk about today. So he was born in 1910 in Kansas City, USA, to an English father and an American mother, both journalists. The family settled back in London in 1917, mainly because of Gray's father's work for the Foreign Office. So Gray ended up being brought up as an upper-class English boy on the fringes of the Bloomsbury set. And indeed, he mixed with many of the most interesting and radical intellectuals and political thinkers of the day. After Westminster Public School, Gray went to Cambridge University, where he specialised in physiology. He went on to become a research student working under Lord Edgar Adrian and Sir Brian Matthews, two of the absolute giants of neurophysiology at the time. Indeed, Adrian received the Nobel Prize while Gray was working as a research student. At Cambridge, it became clear that Gray was a brilliant experimentalist, as well as a brilliant designer and maker of scientific equipment, a theme that I would say went on to really define the rest of his career. After Cambridge, uh, Gray went to work with Frederick Goller to work on research into EEG, the electroencephalogram, which is a non-invasive recordings of the electrical activity of the brain made through electrodes placed on the scalp. Gray went on to make very many very important contributions 
to EEG research, it became one of its leading lights with a very big international reputation. Indeed, it was his EEG research which led to the central topic of today's podcast, as we'll see. As Brainerd opens with Walter and his colleagues about to take a US military flight to Oslo, I'm keen to hear what you can tell us about his links to the US military. Well, the link to the US military is a very typical Grey Walter story, I have to say. Now, since the late 1930s, Grey had been working at the Burden Neurological Institute in Bristol as head of physiology and then later director of research, and then indeed overall director of institute. As a private institution, there was always worries about where they're going to get their funding from. So according to Gray, there he was, sat at his desk sometime in the mid-1950s, I guess, worrying about how he's going to fund the institute, where he's, how he's going to make ends meet, when in walks a person in full military uniform, someone in a USAF colonel's uniform, saying, Hi, Gray, do you want some money? Now, it turns out this colonel was someone who 20 years earlier, Gray had tutored. He was Well, he'd been a medical student at Cambridge. Now, Gray was, of course, very friendly. Everybody liked him. And then, he, of course, he had all his own uh, family links to America. So he got on particularly well with this guy who was by now head of the US Air Force Research Centre in Brussels. So together, they decided they could cook up a suitable research projects so that Gray could get funding from the USAF. We've called this episode of the podcast Topsy Goes to Norway because Topsy went with them. Who was Topsy? Well, Topsy was the nickname for the Toposcope, a quite remarkable machine designed by Gray and Harold Shipton and built by uh, Harold Shipton, who was Gray's right-hand man and his main electronic engineer. It was probably the most advanced brain activity recording device in existence at the time, and I would say it's probably the very first real-time brain imaging device ever created. It was a 22-channel device, so there were 22 electrodes placed on the scalp, and each of these was connected to its own screen, little round radar-type screens. And these were arranged spatially to map directly onto the arrangement of the electrodes on the scalp, so you could see spatial patterns of electrical activity across the brain. This was very useful for looking at uh, synchronisation and spread of activation and so on. The displays used a rotating spiralling scan, which looked visually uh, quite amazing, actually, some of the images you see of it, but could be a bit difficult to interpret. That's really fascinating, Phil, but Topsy proved rather ephemeral. So what do you think Grey Walter's legacy is? I'd say his legacy is two-pronged. Uh, in medical, neurological, neurophysiological circles, he's remembered as a very important pioneer. His work in EEG, in pushing the technology on, first person to show that you could use EEG in a proper clinical setting as a diagnostic tool, and many, many um, contributions like that, some of which we talked about, but there are other things I've got time to go into. It. For instance, he was the first person to uh, produce a computer brain interface. But however, there's a whole other legacy he has. So in AI, robotics, cognitive science, he's a very revered figure there too. The reason for that is 
In the 1950s, late 1940s, he was a very big figure in cybernetics, which was the field that prefigured AI and cognitive science. This field was trying to produce new ways of understanding communication and control in animals, but also in machines. How does the brain process information? How might that be applied to producing smart machines, basically? Now, Gray made this really important contribution to this whole area and became a big global star because of it in building what were, in fact, the first ever mobile autonomous robots. That's a major landmark in the history of robotics and AI. He produced what he called artificial creatures, which were controlled by artificial neural networks that he built out of analogue uh, electronics that produced interesting behaviours in the real world. I mean, he was decades ahead of his time doing that and consequently is a big hero to people like me who are basically following in his cybernetic footsteps. That's great, Phil. Thanks for giving us your time. My pleasure, Andy. And good luck with the opera. It uh, sounds marvellous, I have to say. We've now heard about the leader of the group, but who were the other three and why were they going to Norway? To answer these questions, I'm going to talk to the person who did the background research for Brainland, fellow librettist Ken Barrett. Welcome, Ken. Tell us a bit about yourself and your link to these characters. In the early 1980s, I did uh, EEG-based research in psychophysiology at the Bird Neurological Institute in Bristol. Um, I arrived there two years after Gray Walter had died, but his portrait was on the staircase and he, he kind of cast a long shadow. And my doctoral supervisor had been supervised by Gray, as everybody called him. Um, I also worked with, um, was eventually tolerated by Gray's old electronics technician, Bunny Warren. And I trained there clinically with a neuropsychiatrist called Harry Crow, uh, both of who went with Gray Walter on that trip to Norway and are in the opera. In fact, it was Harry who first told me about the trip over lunch 40 years ago. So who were they going to visit in Oslo? They were going to a lab that had just been set up with American money by a Norwegian doctor and researcher called Carl Sem Jakobsen. Interesting man. He qualified in medicine during World War II and whilst working as a doctor, joined the Norwegian resistance to the Nazis. He's eventually betrayed to the Gestapo, but in the middle of winter manages to escape over the border to Sweden, where he then works as a doctor in camps set up by uh, for Norwegian refugees. Uh, American special forces gathered intelligence in those camps and he seems to have uh, made some good contacts there because after the war he gets a plum research post at the prestigious Mayo Clinic. His research are involved inserting electrodes deep inside the frontal lobes of the brain, leaving them in place for weeks and months. And this was initially for people with epilepsy to identify parts of the brain producing abnormal electrical discharges and fits, and then coagulate them, shut them down. But it was then extended to include psychiatric patients, uh, a kind of more targeted, less destructive form of frontal leukotomy. Why create a lab in Norway, quite a poor country back then? And, and how did they get there? A state-of-the-art jet, perhaps? Actually, their transport was a very slow ex-World War II Dakota, 
It took almost five hours to get to Oslo from Gloucestershire. And this was in November, and they apparently made a very hairy landing in fog. In fact, Bunny said he'd never flown again as a result. So why move to Norway? Well, I guess Jakobsen was glad to be home. Um, but who would fund such a setup? Well, there's been speculation that the military or intelligence were involved, and he did do some EEG research on combat pilots there, but the procedure to insert electrodes in the brain was experimental, and uh, it's been pointed out that Norwegians were much less inclined to sue their doctors than Americans. Where does Topsy come in? Why take half a tonne of recording kit? As Phil mentioned earlier, um, the development of Topsy, the toposcope, throughout the 50s was funded by the US military. Um, it's reasonable to ask why on earth they should want to do that. We can't believe it's just that they're old mates from Cambridge. In the wake of the Korean War, there was real fear in military and intelligence circles about the communist ability to brainwash people through some sort of conditioning. Um, Gray Walter had actually worked with a disciple of Pavlov's during the 1930s, and it's highly possible that he uh, was able to convince the military that this new, very advanced brain investigation tool, the toposcope, might give insights into um, conditioning. You've got to remember this was 1957 in November. A month before the Soviet Union had managed to put uh, a satellite, Sputnik, into orbit for the first time. There was a huge increase in US military and intelligence funding uh, in, in response to that. And Topsy really rode that wave until the end of the decade. In fact, uh, the signals it produced from the brain were so complex and difficult to interpret that um, nothing really came of it. Uh, and in fact, it was dropped when uh, digital computing came in. But in 1957, it was still um, a live issue. And th the prospect of taking it to Norway was also exciting, because for the first time, Topsy was going to record uh, signals from deep inside um, a human brain. This is real uh, frontier stuff like that. Back in the real world, what happened when they got back? Did anything come of the visit? The neurosurgeon on the trip, uh, a New Zealander called Dougie Phillips, learned the technique for inserting indwelling electrodes and operated on his first wires case, as they called them, the following year, 58, a person with uncontrolled epilepsy. They went on to operate on many people with depression and OCD, um, but destructive frontal dichotomies were common back then, and this new technique was much more refined by contrast. Uh, a decade later, of course, there was a reaction against all psychosurgery, and the technique fell out of use. Thanks to Ken and Phil for their contributions. We end this episode of the Brainland podcast with a little more of Steve Brown's prelude to Act One. For more about the opera, score, libretto, designs, interviews and more, go to our website, brainlandtheopera.co.uk, or join us on the next Brainland podcast. <laughs>